millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that voyages through the village of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leder, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm seeking sanctuary in town. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Hello there, Jake. Hello, Michael. Welcome back to the Ghibliotech. It's always lovely to be back. Mm -hmm. So we're finishing this mini-series with a sort of prologue, epilogue, final two films. Yes, we're finishing the Studio Ghibli podcast with two films that are not made by Studio Ghibli. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Last episode, we had Ocean Waves, which was the last Ghibli feature we had to cover, 22 episodes in. And now we're going back to the beginning. Mm. We're going to to go back to the debut films by both Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki. I need to forget what I think I know. Exactly. This is where it all begins. We're getting, we're getting very Prometheus here, aren't we? <laughs> this week, it's Little Norse Prince, as it's known in Europe anyway, mm. or the UK, also known as Hall's Prince of the Sun, The Great Adventure of Horus, Prince of the Sun, many names. Whatever it's called, wherever you are, it's the 1968 film by Isao Takahata. 1968, Jake, this is early. Mm, yeah. Neither of us were born then. Yeah, it would be a long time and 20 plus years until this, even the studio would be born. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, And this is early even in the animation industry in Japan. So it's a really interesting film to cover. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about how this one came to be. Let's do that, but first, a bit of plot recap. Little Norse Prince is the story of Horus, a young man who pulls a blade out of a rock giant, only to discover that it is the Sword of the Sun, and if reforged, the sword's destiny will transform the boy into the Prince of the Sun. Urged by his father, Horus and his pet bear Koro travel to his ancestral village, a place destroyed by the Frost King Grunwald. Along the way, he helps a village whose residents are besieged by Grunwald's magic, but the villagers feel threatened when he befriends Hilda, a beautiful girl whose haunting songs conceal a dark secret. Okay, Michael, I'm looking forward to this prequel episode of the podcast. Uh, We've kind of covered everything around 
Studio Ghibli and what was happening then and what everyone was up to just before it started. But what is happening 20 years before? Big question. And actually, it's not really an era that's written about as much in these books. People tend to focus, as they probably should, on the big films later in the careers of these great filmmakers. It's quite exciting to hear that there is a book that's being written all about Little Norse Prince by Andrew Osmond and Jonathan Clements. Jonathan Clements, who collaborated with Helen McCarthy on the Encyclopedia of Anime years ago. And Andrew Osmond, who many people would recognize that name from Empire Magazine, Sight and Sound, anytime the Ghibli film comes up for review. So that would be really interesting to read. But let's go over what we can find out. We'll start with Takahata. So we're saying Takahata graduates university in Tokyo in 1959. He studies French, French literature in particular, but he still wants to go into animation and was inspired by watching Paul Grimaud's uh, The King and the Mockingbird and decides to follow that as his path, even though he has no artistic background. So he gets a job at Toei Animation, starting as an assistant director, and he works his way up through the ranks, particularly wowing the top brass early on in his career with his work on a TV series called Wolf Boy Ken. Um, and he develops, over these years, a mentor-pupil sort of relationship with a legendary Japanese animator called Yasuo Otsuka, who in 1968 was developing this project and brought Takahata on board as director. And this film would be inspired by a puppet play called uh, Sun Above Chikisani, which in turn was inspired by a myth from the oral tradition of the Ainu people, who were the indigenous people of northern Japan in Hokkaido. Um, but in development, the execs said, no, no one would want to see a film based in that region. We've got to make it European. So could you transpose that story into Scandinavia and make it Norse? Um, so that's why this film becomes known as Horus, Prince of the Sun, or Little Norse Prince as we know it here. Production-wise, there was something of a collegiate spirit quite radically um, in, in terms of how the roles and responsibilities were doled out. All of the lead animators and artists chipped in with character design, story ideas, key bits of artwork, storyboarding. And so that meant that there was a certain younger member of the team mm. who was able to rise up through the ranks in who this project. This was, of course, Hayao Miyazaki, who had developed a relationship with Takahata after they met at a union committee meeting. Um, and Miyazaki didn't know what role he would play in this project, but he knew that he had to get involved because it was Takahata's first film as director, feature film as director. And yet, the climate of the company at the time allowed Miyazaki to work his way into these pre-production meetings to sneak sketches and drawings on into the offices of Takahata and Otsuka, the, the animator. And before he knew it, he was designing whole scenes and whole characters. And in an interview years later, uh, Miyazaki described the process and the experience as, I actually learned how to do that work during the process of making the film. It wasn't a case of implementing what I already knew. I was feeling my way as I worked on the project. So when Little Norse Prince was done, it was easy for me to do anything. Good I love training ground, I love learning on the job. Their relationship is so interesting. Like... I love that Miyazaki becomes such a big, big name. Takata, mm -hmm. in the wider sphere, is not as recognizable, is not the face of the studio in such a way. But really, going back to this, if it was not for him, if it was not for this project, we might not get A Spirited Away mm -hmm. or A House Moving Castle. 
and it, it will be a theme in this episode and the Castle Cagliostro episode. This is a point where Takahata and Miyazaki were joined at the hip. They'd be working together. They'd move around the industry together, share projects, sometimes share credits. They'd, they'd make up uh, pseudonyms for themselves where they'd be co-directing side by side with some of the TV series they'd work on. These are things we don't get to see as much in the UK. They've never really been fully licensed and released. So it's a bit frustrating in these contexts segments to talk about them. But anyway, let's get back to Little Norse Prince. Miyazaki might have felt pretty good afterwards, but the production of Little Norse Prince was had faced all sorts of difficulties. I mean, it's a familiar tune. They missed deadlines. They blew through all their budgets. And there was this charged relationship with the execs at the company. Some people say it's because Takahata and many of his close colleagues were so big in the unions for the animators and the workers at the studio that the execs were trying to do down the the, the union bosses. But whatever the drama behind the scenes, what happened was Takata was so far behind that he had to cut half an hour from the finished film. And then there were two scenes in the finished cut they didn't even have time to fully animate. So then the film's finally released in 1968, and by that point it had been in production for almost three years. And it reportedly had a very limited short release where it had no real chance to even break even, make its money back. So it was a failure. And Takahata was immediately demoted at the company. He was 32, which compare that with all of the other filmmakers we talked about. I think most recently we talked about Tomomi Mochizuki for directing Ocean Waves. I think he was in his mid-30s. 32 is very young Mm. to be directing your first feature. But... Nevertheless, Little Norse Prince goes into the history books with and has considerable influence. And so many of its crew members go on to revolutionize the industry in the decade, two decades afterwards. And anime as we know it today wouldn't exist if it weren't for this film and many of the films coming out of that company at the time. And of course, it gives us the first, collabor- first major collaboration, at least in feature film work, of Miyazaki and Takahata. Wow. This is such an important film mm-hmm. that really I should have figured out at this point that it was going to be that. <laughs> um, but maybe it's because it, it feels so slight watching it that you don't feel that historic weight because obviously they, they didn't know what they were going to do next mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah. it makes sense. Well, let's just see how slight you thought it was. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. (laughs) 
Jake, we love talking about company logos in this podcast. This is one where you have a classic Toei logo up top. Yes, this looks like one of the logos from when Simpsons goes to Japan and Homer discovers that he is the face of a, is it a... Washington? Mr. Sparkle? Mr. Sp- he does, yeah, and it's like that kind of... Uh, Japanese logo branding mm-hmm. that was really nice to see. Well, Toei is a, a huge company and their animation division would go on to absolutely dominate in years to come. I think they, they did Sailor Moon uh, and the Dragon Ball series as well. So a big deal later on. But and a really good looking logo. A good logo, exactly. Yeah. But it's not Ghibli, of course. Yes. But what else is different or the same? Well, that's... Th- I can't not go into these films now without trying to see it like as a not filled in paint by numbers and like what elements of it am I going to be able to fill in and recognize as part of this director and I can see that and then what bits of it are going to leave blank what are we never going to fill in and what gets left behind and I think something that we talk about a lot is character design character animation Mm -hmm. and that was the key thing that I noticed in this, that I don't think that is that is there yet. It's quite scrappy looking. Mm-hmm. There's not a real sense of identity across the characters. Even if you look at something as broad in its designs as Spirited Away, from Chihiro to No Face to Yubaba, as wildly different as they are, they feel like they're still all within the same world. And at times, I don't think this film has that. Mm -hmm. I think characters have just been kind of quickly sketched to get into the frame and they don't know if they do honestly feel like they are all from the same village. Well, yes. uh, You have Halls, who looks nothing like Hilda, who looks nothing like those creepy children. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then the animals look like they've stepped out of contemporary Disney films. Yeah, it's got a feeling of... um, the animated BFG film. Right. Um, it's, it's quite scratchy. It's quite scrappy. Um, it's a little uh, cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think like, the the depth that they would go into with their designs is here yet. It just needs to be, this is a boy. Mm-hmm. This is a little boy. And he looks like a Stone Age Dennis the Menace. And that's the extent of him. You don't get so much of his character from his appearance, which later they would be so good mm-hmm. at being able to express so much about someone very quickly through that design of them. Yeah, compare that character with Pazu from Castle in the Sky and how much you, you in the design of that guy and the, the way he moves, the way he eats everything, you really get something from him. There's something lacking here. But mm. you've got to think about the fact that this is 20 years between this and Grave of the Fireflies and so much can change within that time a whole industry a whole way of making films the whole anime look is created in the space between this and maybe what comes 10 15 20 years later this is the radical cutting edge where they're still figuring things out and maybe some of the context explains that for you that Mm. they're all young guys given the opportunity to work in this collegiate collaborative manner that's it and if they are, if everyone's bouncing around doing different things like that, it totally makes sense that, I mean, Hull's face, like the actual shape of it changes between scenes and shots. Like it goes from this kind of rounded thing 
do at some scenes it will be more of a narrower oblong shape and absolutely yeah if everyone's mucking in and having a go um as much as that's great i can get why there is a lack of identity to the film mm -hmm. because they're just having to spread it around there are bits like some of the skies are beautiful and that they've got that pearlescence that we would see like all the way down to Marnie and that within that main heavy production period we don't see as much but it's a very takahatari thing to be working in a more watercolor space mm -hmm. um, and to be working with gradients which is less of a Miyazaki thing mm -hmm. and it's like seeing those little bits shine through the film are great a particular bit with some fish um, which I was a big fan of, um, where the film diverts for a few minutes to show a fish harvest. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the safflower scene from Only Yesterday, but done in a more cartoonish kid's way where there kind of has to be a song and it's a bit seven dwarves mm -hmm. uh, in a line type scene. But you can tell that that's, that's Takahata coming through there. That's his interest in nature and human relationships and agriculture just for this small it's not exactly documentary like he might be interested in doing but it's this little diversion from the narrative to just get lost in that process for a bit and it's interesting that you see that kernel of something he would develop later in his career but he wouldn't really make an action epic like this film mm. certainly not in his feature films, or certainly not with his Ghibli films, he would always he'd go more in that thematic direction, the the documentary, the taking on these challenging topics. So, what you do have in this film that really stands out are things that you wouldn't really um, think of when you think of Takahata, the Ghibli filmmaker. So, you have this these some action sequences that they actually do have time to animate that are. Very thrilling, dynamic, energetic. Well, from the from the beginning, there's a there's a wolf fight mm -hmm. with holes in his axe. That's great, and the axe is a great animation creation. Mm -hmm. it, it has the physics and personality of Captain America's shield or Thor's hammer, and it, it's on a string, of course, so it's not actually spinning around or boomeranging back. But it's it's really vibrant and vital. Oh yeah, and and it's it's got Mission Impossible capabilities to it. Like as much as it can be a weapon, it can save you when you're falling off a cliff and you can climb up. <laughs> but that's something that you have to almost look at this as a historical document and wind your expectations back and understanding of what animation is because this would have been coming out around the same time as the um, the Disney films that some people would say are second or maybe even third tier where they were doing Jungle Book or... 101 Dalmatians, those late 60s films where they were just song and dance films. They weren't really radical experimental films anymore pushing animation. They'd created a house style and were often reusing frames and reusing animation and character designs and even voices between the films. So when you then start up a film like this and you have such a thrilling sequence that really puts you subjectively within the action, that can seem really radical. Mm. And something else that's remarked upon about this film, I don't particularly like this film on the scale of the films Takata would make later, but 
I can see these little moments where the, the people draw out as being genius of the time. And the other thing is the complex psycho psychology of this film is something that was not really seen in feature-length animation at the time. And it may seem quite blunt compared to what these great masters would do later in their career, but the fact that you have doubt and mistrust being seeded within this community by an outside figure to, to not trust another figure, the fact that Hilda... I sometimes think I'd say that Hilda comes across to me almost like the Silver Surfer when he's first introduced in the Fantastic Four comics as the the, the herald of of Galactus. Mm. Um, she is this ambiguous figure. She really does seem to care, but can't fight her background. I've been, but also the animation isn't helping her. Mm. Like from the moment she's on screen, she looks like Children of the Corn level evil. <laughs> It's just like she looks dead, uh, and it's a. I don't know anything about the film, and the moment she's on screen, I don't trust her because of that reason. Mm -hmm. And the film spends so long just loving Hilda, and there are just these sequences where people are saying, "Should we go and listen to another one of Hilda's songs? Oh, how lovely! And it doesn't she sing so well? And she's doing the song." And it's like 45 minutes of that before it's like, oh, she's actually part of the baddies plan. Yeah, obvious. We knew that. But then again, I'm I'm not a kid watching a kid's film. It's, it's funny though, you, you read some academic reviews or maybe reviews at the time, they saw this as being beyond a kid's film, that it had complexity that would... Um, appeal to adults and one thing that I do wonder if it resonated with you at all is this socialist theme at the end so that many if we forge the sword with teamwork then we can win the day so many column inches are dedicated to that to that sequence to that turnaround that resolution about it being radical about it showing that it's created by a bunch of people who are members of a union fighting against their own big bosses but it comes across a bit like a Saturday morning special. Absolutely, special, yeah. And like the, but that's also because you can have that message, but it's how you portray it that would make it more interesting and give it more depth. And I don't think the script helps it. Mm -hmm. Like it is words like, if we work as a team, we can forge the sword. It's very on the nose stuff that feels like it's edutainment. Probably a word you can apply to most of Takahata's films, mm. really. He is trying to educate and, and inspire as well as uh, entertain. But in this one, maybe he hasn't fully developed that muscle yet. No, I don't think so. But I, I think there are really interesting bits about it. Like, like you say, seeing him working with violence yeah. is just such an odd curiosity. Um and the fact that the two most violent sequences in the film aren't really there at all. So what did you think of that? I thought my television had broken. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it took me a while to adjust. And then I realized, uh, oh, no, that's these are just like Ken Burns documentary <laughs> pan and scan stills mm -hmm. to show these big fights that we've built up to. Because of it being so jarring, it instantly made me like enjoy the film more because right. it was suddenly just this shock that I was not expecting and that no one would really choose to do, I don't think. And obviously that's that's what happened, that they were planning these big sequences. And you could see hints of 
like the the overrun of the village from the rats feeling like the omu from mm. Naushka. And you could see these little bits of it. Um, and it was a shame because I thought these, these, this is the film going large scale, which it doesn't get many chances to do. Uh, you have the big fight between the baddie and Moog, the mm -hmm. rock man. And that's maybe it. Otherwise, it's very much all in the village, um, you know, cartoon midsummer type feel. And I wanted these breakout moments. But the fact that it ended up being this strange slideshow, I mean, I, I quite enjoyed that in a way. There's something to be said about a feature film by a major studio being released unfinished. <laughs> mm. we, we, we hear about that all the time, where there are reshoots or scenes are left on the cutting room floor. Or you, or... Could, you could read it as maybe this is Takahata's plan all along. We know ah. that he had no interest in violence because of his later films. That's not something he's interested in. He's interested in human relationships and nature. And maybe conveniently on the days where they say, right, we need to animate this, these violent bits, he said... Oh, no, <laughs> I don't think we have the time. Let's move on. We'll just stick a slideshow in there instead. That is a very beautiful way of looking at it. I think an anime fans are probably are more used to that than others. The, I know that Neon Genesis Evangelion very famously has unfinished sequences or scenes that stand in for parts they couldn't fully animate or achieve with the budget and the time restraints they had. It's something that maybe you know, that is seen around the industry, but seeing this when we've been blessed with how high standard everything Ghibli would make uh, is, it's it's quite jarring. It's a surprise. But then you like it when there's a bit of jarring mm. editing or yeah, a absolutely. little shot or something yeah. that, that jolts you out of your stupor. Yeah. But Jake, you mentioned that this uh, that, that, you, that you can see this within the whole Takahata framework. You can see him working behind the scenes there. But I'd really like to know where this would rank if we were to put it in the leaderboard and yeah, Jacob's ladder. Because we, we've kind of been keeping just to the the Ghiblis. We haven't stuck Mary and the Witch's Flower in there despite doing an episode or on the Red that. Turtle we didn't put in there. Yeah. Um so may, maybe some honorary guests mm -hmm. in the leaderboard. Where would you put this one, Michael? So, Jake, these honorary entries into the leaderboard in Jacob's Ladder, we're not going to try and put a number on it. They're going to sit apart because, of course, how far does the rabbit hole go? We know that Takahata made other features before they founded Ghibli in the 80s. Of course, there were all the TV series or the TV specials they worked on, but Miyazaki and Takahata. We're not going to try and stuff them into the Ghibliotech leaderboard. But if you were going to put this side by side with these other films, where would it land? Um... If I'm honest, this is going to be the the bottom of the Takahata films for me. Um, as we know, big Yamada's fan over mm. here. It was never going to displace that. And overall, just because of stuff like those battle sequences and because of seeing parts of a director come through and trying to test stuff out, um, ultimately made it a more interesting watch for me. I'd have to say it's higher than... Cat returns. It's not bottom of the pile or anything like that, but it's it's not going to break through into the films that I really love. Same, really. 
it's it's it would rank quite lowly if we were going to rank it alongside others. I'm actually quite interested since we're talking about this as a debut. We're talking about guys in their early thirties trying things out. A very similar narrative almost to Ocean Waves, where these were all young animators given the reins for the first time. I'd much rather go and rewatch Ocean Waves than Little Norse Prince. Little Norse Prince has more going for it than Tales from Earthsea and maybe Arietti. Just talking about these other debuts. But then Whisper of the Heart is the best debut, I think. And the best film, lest we forget. Currently it is, isn't it? <laughs> But Little Norse Prince, as film fans and film critics and writers and whatever we are, all the many, many hats we wear, we come across films in many contexts. And we've up until this point, the films we've watched for Ghibliotech are films we'd watch as fans. You know, we'd sit down on a Saturday afternoon and watch these films. Whereas this, for me, is a film I'd go along to the British Film Institute, I'd get my program note, there'd be an introduction, and it'd be put in context, and there'd be a panel discussion afterwards, and I'd feel that that would be how I want to see this film. I will, I, I will not put this on in uh, of an evening, just out of the enjoyment of watching it. Mm. For me, this is a piece of film history that, well, for example, I can't wait to read the book about it. Yeah, I want to learn more but it doesn't really exist in the same world as all the other films we've talked about today. Mm. Okay. Well, if The Little Norse Prince is more than just a history lesson for you, let us know on Twitter about it, mm -hmm. uh, where we are at Ghibliotech. Next week, Jake, we have this other prequel episode with The Castle of Cagliostro, Hayao Miyazaki's debut feature. Do you have any idea what you're getting yourself in for for this one? This one, I know he's working with characters that weren't his. Mm -hmm. uh, he's working within a franchise that already existed. Uh, and that I'm very curious about. But beyond that knowledge, don't know anything about it other than it's on Netflix. <laughs> yes. So that's actually something about these two films. It's part of why we're covering them. They're the most available non-Ghibli films by these filmmakers. They have, in certain territories, been wrapped up into the Ghibli collections of whoever holds the license in that territory. So Little Norse Prince has been released by Studio Canal in the UK with very similar branding on the DVD cover. Cagliostro is wrapped up in Japan with the Hayao Miyazaki collection, the Ghibli release. But they're also, because they're not wholly owned by Ghibli, they have different digital licensing rights. So they, this one is on Amazon. Cagliostro is on Netflix. They're actually available to see, which is the most exciting thing. So that's why we wanted to cover them here as well. But until we talk about Cagliostro in the next episode, if you want to get in touch with us, Jake is on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And Michael is Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me. Hi, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through the credits. I mentioned that many of the animators on Little Norse Prince had long and important careers afterwards. Well, 
I'd like to spotlight Yoichi Kotabe, who worked with Miyazaki and Takahata all the way up to Naushka in the, in the 80s. But then he left animation in 1985 when he became an in-house artist for Nintendo. He worked there for a further 20-odd years and had particular impact on the character designs and look of the Super Mario Brothers games and had played a key role as animation supervisor for the Pokemon franchise. What a career. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.